0: I'm still trying to get used to these LED lights. Feel like I'm on stage at Broadway or something. Well, welcome home, some of you that have <coughs> been away. We won't talk about from the cold regions that you came from. Colorado, Indiana. We got you top. There's a man here from North Dakota. <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh it has been a cold week, has it not? But it's it's things are about to warm up, so that's good. We're in 1 Samuel 31. Uh, for Israel, for David and Saul, things are changing. David has just come through a very sinful period in his life where he... Uh, joined the Philistines in raiding and marauding around southern Judah, and he would not raid Israelites, but he would raid other groups of people, and he would kill the men, the women, the children in the south Judah area. And he killed them because he didn't want any evidence getting back to Akish, who had befriended him, and give him the city of Ziklag to live in. And David is uh, now appearing with the Philistines as they prepare to battle Israel. It's kind of like a May Day parade there with the Philistines. And some of the princes, some of the the generals in the Philistine army, they get concerned when they see David there among them because they've heard of the courageous battle, weary fighter that David is, and they required that David be sent home. And David returns to his city of refuge, which King Achish had given him, which is Ziglag. But Ziglag has been burnt to the ground. And David's people and his wives have been taken captive by the Amalekites. Now, just a little history on the Amalekites they were cowardly foes of Israel. From the day Israel left Egypt, the Amalekites would come and kind of attack them uh, from the rears, attacking the older, attacking the women and the old folks. And in Exodus chapter 17, Joshua is there fighting with the Amalekites down in the valley. Moses is up on the mountaintop praying That Israel will prevail and Aaron and others are holding Moses' arms up where he can pray. And Israel does prevail. But now, these same Amalekites have raided Ziglag. As David and his men are off there with the Philistines. David has hit rock bottom. He has... Joined himself to the Philistines. Uh, He's been caught up in much bloodshed. And stealing and looting and that kind of thing. But here's the good thing. God is not done with David. Have you ever sinned grievously and thought maybe God was through with you? David is there. But David, he's becomes extremely sorrowful and repentant. And the scripture tells us that David wept before the Lord until he can weep no more. This is not just a shedding of a tear and being a little sorrowful for his behavior. David is in deep regret. We're not told how long David weeps. But he wept till there's no more tears available and david being a man after god's own heart and one of david's godly traits was his willingness to humble himself and repent david has wholeheartedly sinned and he will sin again he's not through But David, when confronted with his sin, he also repents wholeheartedly. To repent is not only to be sorrowful for your behavior, your sin. To repent means you make a 180 degree turn away from sin. And that's where David is. And we read in chapter 30 of 1 Samuel... That David's repentance brought him strength. He strengthened himself in the Lord through repentance. And David becomes valiant again. When his heart became right with God again. Repentance strengthened David. And it will strengthen you and I too. I thank God for repentance I don't have to live in the wrong direction against God. I can repent and turn from it. Thank you, Lord. But David, now he's got a clear mind again and a clean heart, and he's seeking God if he should go and attack the Amalekites who have burnt his city of Ziglag. God gives David an answer, go, attack them. And David is given a great victory. And he also takes a lot of animals and different loot and booty that were not his, and he becomes wealthy. But David is obedient to the Lord's direction to attack the Amalekites and to destroy them. For God has directed him to do this. David obeys God to destroy the Amalekites. Saul, King Saul, was not willing to destroy Israel's enemies, the Amalekites. But let's jump into the last chapter of 1 Samuel, chapter 31, and we'll read that chapter. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Then the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, and Melchizedek, Saul's sons. The battle became fierce against Saul. The archers hit him, and he was severely wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and he fell on it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul... His three sons, his armor-bearer, and all his men died together that same day. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those who were on the other side of the Jordan, so that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook the cities and fled, and the Philistines came and dwelt in them. So it happened the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. And they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim it in the temple of their idols and among the people. Then they put his armor in the temple of Ashtoreth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshean. Now when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul... All the valiant men arose, traveled all night, and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshean. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. Then they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. Thus in 1 Samuel. But it actually continues on in 2 Samuel. The battle has become extremely violent. The Philistines are pursuing Saul and his sons, and they're very intense. Saul's son, including Jonathan, are killed. You have swords clashing. You have arrows flying. And one of these arrows hits Saul. Now, they wore armor, so they had to hit him in a particular spot for it to be a mortal wound. So it maybe came in at uh, an area where there was no uh, protection. And Saul, he's there, and he's severely wounded, but he's not dead. And he calls for his armor bearer. Draw your sword and finish me off. Kill me now, armor bearer. But the armor-bearer, he's not willing to kill his king. So Saul props up his sword, and he falls on his sword, and he kills himself. And if you know anything about the Jewish people and uh, the Jewish law, it's a mortal sin to commit suicide. But Saul does. But Saul, he's not willing to allow the Philistines to abuse what he thinks will be his dead body. He doesn't want that to happen. But the army bearer, he sees Saul dead. And he says, hey, I'm out of here too. And he falls on his sword and kills himself. So in one day, Saul dies by his own hand and his sons die by the hand of the Philistines. Israel's army is defeated. Saul and his sons, they're dead. And the general population of Israel, they desert their cities, and the Philistines come and indwell their cities in their uh, walled areas. Now the looting parties go out the following day, and they're going to strip the bodies of their slain enemies, the Israelites. And they find Saul and his sons, and they find them there on Mount Gilboa. And what Saul did not want begins to happen. They begin to abuse his dead body. And they cut off Saul's head. They strip him of his armor, and they place Saul's armor in the pagan temple of Ashtoreth. And what the Philistines are doing, they're giving glory to their pagan god, Ashtoreth, who is a symbol of sensual love and fertility. They're giving Ashtoreth the credit for their victory over Israel. And then they take Saul's body, they're not done with him, and they take his sons also, and they hang them on a wall there in Bethshean really a disgusting pagan ritual is going on here. But they're not the first ones or the last ones to ever do this kind of thing with a dead body. Years later, Rome, when they crucified people, they didn't always take the body off the cross. And they were noted for their crucifixions. And they would leave a body hanging on a cross to display their brutality and their control over the people. But you leave a dead body hanging on a cross and soon the vultures and the birds of prey will begin to feast upon that dead body. Jesus' body was removed the same day. And Jesus' body was put in a new tomb. So our Lord didn't suffer the mutilation of a dead body. Fast forward to the future. In Revelation 11, during the tribulation time, God has two witnesses. They're clothed in sackcloth, and they prophesy for three and a half years. And they're given power to strike the earth with as many plagues as they see necessary. And when their testimony is finished, when their three and a half years are over, the beast from the bottomless pit comes and he kills them. The nations around this area see the dead bodies, and they let them lie there on the streets for three and a half days they will not allow the bodies of these two witnesses to be buried. And the people living in that area, in that city, they're so happy at the death of these two witnesses that they begin to exchange gifts with one another, make a big party out of it. But after three and a half days, God revives his two witnesses. They stand on their feet And God calls them up into heaven. And all their enemies see this happen. Back to Jabesh Gilead. The men of Jabesh Gilead received the news of the death of Saul and his sons there at Mount Gilboa. The Philistines, they desecrated the body of Saul and his sons and they hang their dead bodies on the wall of the temple of Ashtoreth. And this disturbing action by the Philistines caused the valiant men of Jabesh-Gilead to march all night to retrieve the bodies off the walls there at Bethsheim. Jabesh Gilead, this little village, this little city, the men there are not willing to let the Philistines continue to desecrate the body of Saul and his sons. And by an act of courage, they retrieve these bodies, which are so mutilated that they must cremate them. They burn them with fire, and then they take the bones and they bury the bones uh, on their tamarisk tree. But the men of Jabesh-Gilead, they've remembered that Saul, 40 years before, saved, come to the rescue of them, and they must do something about it. They didn't forget the kindness that King Saul had shown them. And so, through an act of courage, they retrieve a dead body. But this brings us to an end of the story of Saul, king of Israel. Saul was a man anointed by the prophet Samuel. He started out so well, he started out so humble. If you're anything of a football fan, you notice that Georgia, this past week, beat Oklahoma in the semi-championship football game at the Rose Bowl. It was a really a great game, a high-scoring game, and it went back and forth. Baker Mayfield, the Heisman Trophy winner, quarterback for Oklahoma. He was visibly shaken by the loss. Baker, throughout this football season, had to be disciplined by his coach for his arrogant, unbecoming behavior. And it made the news. But Baker, he's carrying on after Oklahoma's loss, and he's crying, and and he's... uh, Complaining, And then one of the big linemen from Georgia is overheard on TV, which had an audience of about 27 million, saying, humble yourself, Baker. This lineman for Georgia said, hey, humble yourself, Baker. And what an appropriate challenge to Baker Mayfield. Simply humble yourself. Yourself. Baker was a, a great winner, got a lot of notoriety, but he was a poor loser. And he displayed that arrogant attitude, that bad attitude, unsportsmanlike attitude before the whole nation to see. It reminded me of King Saul. In chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, verses 17 through 19, we have three verses, and it's like it's Saul's epitaph. Let me read you those three verses. 1 Samuel 15, 17 through 19. So Samuel said, talking to Saul, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you, you swoop down on the spoils and do evil in the sight of of the Lord. Samuel is telling Saul, this is how the cow chews grass. You knew I had to work that in there, owning cows. (laughs) Saul, when you were little, when you were unimportant in your own eyes, God anointed you king of Israel. Saul, you had an opportunity to be great as God's anointed king but somewhere along the way you began to think God's commands were arbitrary and Saul you begin to obey God at your own discretion Saul's disobedience is demonstrated with partial disobedience And partial disobedience is complete disobedience. It's just like every good lie has a little bit of truth in it. That's kind of the way Saul lived. Saul has come to the place, or he had come to the place, where he picks and chooses how he obeys. And disobedient Saul, he made excuses. He blamed the people. Well, I was afraid of the people. He blames others for his own failures. And this has led Samuel to declare to Saul, God has torn the kingdom out of your hands, Saul, and the Lord has become your enemy. Wow. That's heavy. The lesson for us. Ours is not to wonder why. Ours is but to do or die. I used to tell my sons that. (laughs) Yours is not to wonder why. Just do or die, boys. Mark and Luke record a similar event in Jesus' life. His triumphal entry. And... You may want to turn there. Mark eleven, one through ten. I'm going to read that. But it's an interesting display of obedience. Mark one, or ten, make that Mark eleven, one through ten. Now when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, Go into the village opposite you. And as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Loosen it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it here. So they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street and they loosed it. But some of those who stood there said to them, what are you doing loosing the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded, so they let them go. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, "'Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord!' Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The details of Jesus' command are very simple, very straightforward. Go into this little village opposite you. You're going to find a little colt or donkey tied there. And this colt, no one has ever sat on this colt. The young colt, the young donkey, is what we would call unbroken. Loose this little donkey and bring it to me. And when they ask, why are you doing this? Do not give a long, drawn-out explanation. Simply say, the Lord has need of it. The two disciples are given specific instruction by Jesus... And they answer and do exactly as Jesus commanded. And that's good. They bring this colt to Jesus, and Jesus sat on the colt. Simple little story. Simple instructions by Jesus. And it shows the complete obedience of these two disciples we're not told who these two disciples are these simple commands by jesus must be followed precisely because it's been written it's been prophesied that jesus would ride in to jerusalem on a colt and they has to be done exactly right The Messiah must enter Jerusalem riding on a colt and on a very particular day. And the two disciples, they do well to simply obey simple commands. No arguing or demanding of the colt. Just say the Lord has need of it and that'll be sufficient. And this triumphal entry of Jesus, it takes place because God's word has predicted it. It has foretold of this. And all Jesus needs is simple obedience by two disciples. But how about the colt? How about the donkey? Did you notice anything there? No one has ever sat on this donkey. He's untrained. He's not accustomed to having people ride him. You would think this donkey would be honorary. But to complicate this, they throw garments on this donkey. Jesus sits on the donkey, and the people are shouting. Waving palm branches. You would think this donkey would go crazy. But this donkey, this colt, is completely calm. The donkey is being obedient to Jesus, his creator. All the shouting, this hysterical crowd... And this donkey is just one of those little unseen miracles that we get when we read this story. The disciples, bigger news, they're completely obedient also. And it's beautiful to see that even nature through the donkey and even Jesus' disciples are completely obedient. Jesus has worked out all the details for the disciples to bring this donkey. Jesus has worked out the details of your life and mine, too. He's a complete God. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. Jesus told the disciples one time when they got in a boat, "Let's go to the other side." A storm raises up, and they get fearful. They forgot. Jesus said, "Let's go to the other side. Has God given you something to do?" And it seems simple, be obedient. Be completely obedient. We will never err by being completely obedient to our Lord's commands. And if I don't say anything else to you, that's enough. Amen? Let me get you to stand. We'll close in prayer.